Turns out it's Halloween. Found out about 1 o'clock. Sitting in the teriyaki bowl, and this dude walks in. He's got overalls on, flannel tucked in. I'm like, that's kind of a weird get-up for teriyaki bowl and Marquette. Another lady walks in. She's got her hair, really weird braids. Guy kind of dragging along behind her. And then when I saw the lady come in holding the young cow um, child in her arms, I was like, oh, it's Halloween. Got it. Got it. Our young lamb here behaving as a lion. All right. Well, glad to see everyone made it out. I'm going to pray and we'll get started. Father, thank you for um, your presence. Thank you for your word and vision. Father, thank you for um, calling us into something that's greater than ourselves. Thank you for authoring the story of our lives. And uh, thank you for calling us to participate. We love you. Father, thank you for relationships that you form around us and enrich our lives through. Amen. Amen. All right. So tonight, we've been uh, two weeks talking about marriage. And um, so the question arises, why? Uh, Why would we spend actually almost three weeks talking about marriage. Why? Um, It's a good question. I asked that question um, going into the semester. Why would we spend so much time uh, talking about marriage? Obviously, we we know, you know, there are people that spend a whole life of ministry talking about marriage, but why why are we spending so much time talking about marriage? So tonight, I'm going to talk about three three different points, um, and we're going to we're going to use it to kind of transition and start to move in a little bit different course for the rest of the semester uh, in the year. So why marriage? First of all, I wanted to spend two and a half to three weeks talking about marriage because marriage is a really sensitive subject. That's, that's one reason why I wanted to talk about it for three weeks. Because... Marriage is one of these issues that causes um, us to become greatly disappointed. And marriage um, is something that most people look forward to, and when it doesn't happen in their time or terms, disappointment forms. And in Proverbs 13, 12, we know hope deferred makes the heart sick. Yeah? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so we um, look at marriage as young people and we go, yeah, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm attracted to people of the opposite sex and, you know, I'd like to be married. And, and then it doesn't happen, you know, when we're 18 or we're 19, or we're 20. I've had friends that were over 40 when they got married for the first time. And I have felt and walked with people who have experienced the disappointment caused by not having marriage happen as they thought it would for themselves. Reason number two, hope deferred makes the heart sick. Marriage also is commonly not healthy culturally, even in our own families. And so we see marriages that are unhealthy and we go, that can't be God's will. How could that be God's will? Please don't let it be God's will. And then we start to search the scriptures for reasons why it can't be God's will and it's not God's will. And you find certain passages and you put them together and you go, no, marriage isn't from God at all. It's from the devil. And we, we create doctrines out of disappointment, both personal and observed. 
And so our own disappointment causes us to create doctrines because we look and we find obscure passages in Scripture and we say, this is what the Bible says because I'm disappointed about what's transpired for me. I'm frustrated and hope deferred is making my heart sick and I can't take it anymore. So I'm going to create a theology that says that what I was hoping for, I shouldn't hope for at all. Proverbs 13, 12 says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. I had an amazing moment this week as I was looking at this passage. I always read this as contrast. Hope deferred is over here. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. How many of you guys have ever experienced hope deferred? Good. 50% of you are honest. So, hope deferred is disappointment. You hoped for something and God didn't deliver. Or it didn't happen in your timetable. Or it didn't happen at all. Hope deferred and you felt heart sick. Disappointment. Yeah? It's in the Bible, so I'm not asking you. It's a rhetorical question. When things haven't gone the way we anticipated Our hope is deferred. That which we were excited, anticipating, didn't happen like we thought, and now I'm disappointed, and my heart is sick, and I feel like I want to die. I've experienced that. So hope deferred makes the heart sick. And then on this side, so he's contrasting, right? But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. So I'm going, okay, here's the contrast. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. Felt that before. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Hey, that's the one I'm looking for. I want this one. So I'm not going to go and have my hope deferred. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to figure out what things are safe to hope for. Because I don't want to have hope deferred. I just want the longing fulfilled. So the only things I'm going to long for are going to be the things that I know God is going to deliver on. Well, what do I know for sure God's going to deliver on? Gee, Charles, that's an excellent question. I know he's going to come back, so I'm going to hope for his return. I think he's said some things to me, but I'm not sure, so I'm not going to hope for him because I just don't want to deal with that disappointment. So I'm just going to hope for his return. So then I'm not dealing with hope deferred making my heart sick. I'm just enjoying the tree of life because I know he's coming back. But what happens is I'm corroding my faith because I'm not getting to see God deliver anything. I'm not getting to see God come through on anything he said he'd do and I hoped for and he fulfilled and showed himself faithful. And this week I'm reading this and suddenly the light bulb goes on it's supposed to be read, hope deferred makes the heart sick. However, a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Or, King James, which I love because it gives me a couple of maketh. Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. But when a longing is fulfilled, it is a tree of life. This is what the proverb actually says. Hope deferred will make your heart sick. When the thing you hoped for does not come to pass how you thought it would, when you thought it would, you will be disappointed and your heart will become sick. However, if you will cling to that hope, if you will hold on to that promise, to God who made the promise through the disappointment through the heart sickness, through the despair and the anguish, you will experience when that longing is fulfilled and you will experience the tree of life. That's what the proverb is. But let's be honest. How many of us hold on, press in to God in whom we're disappointed when our heart becomes sick? Most of us create a new theology rooted in disappointment 
so that I don't have to get near to the one who disappointed me most. And, and the reason we spent three weeks on marriage is this hits this as much as any other subject for us as young people. So we stop hoping. I'm just going to stop hoping because I can't bear the pain of disappointment again. I can't bear the anguish of throwing myself in wholeheartedly. I'm going to believe you, God, and having him not come through. I can't take the pain again. The proverb says, if you don't endure the pain and you don't press toward the Father, you will not ever experience the longing fulfilled, which is a tree of life. see this commonplace in another uh, example when someone is ill or dying and we pray for them for months, maybe years, and they die anyway. There are entire people groups who've created doctrines that God doesn't heal anymore because they had a loved one who didn't get well when they thought God would come through. And we can't handle the pain and the disappointment and the anguish and so we created doctrines so that I don't have to believe that's, that people will get healed. I don't have to deal with the disappointment that that person get, didn't get healed. I just say, well, God didn't want to heal them anyway. So now I'm safe from disappointment. Disappointment, fear of disappointment has become an idol in the church. And it's corroding our faith. And it's preventing us from experiencing the fulfillment of, of a desire in allowing us to enjoy that perpetually budding tree of life. When something we long for doesn't happen like we hoped and we're disappointed, usually we're not willing to get honest with God. So we search the scripture to find a way to justify our disappointment. In the case of healing, I've heard over a hundred times talking with Christians, well, Paul had the thorn in the flesh. He didn't get healed. God doesn't heal people. And in conversation with them, it works its way back to a moment where they had prayed for someone to get well and that person died. And they can't handle the disappointment to believe that others will be healed, but that one didn't. And maybe we'll never know why. But I'm not willing to change my doctrine because of disappointment. Because someone else will get healed and suddenly I'll enjoy the tree of life. I will enjoy the fruit of having my longing desired because I continue to press forward into it. Because we're afraid to be honest with God about our disappointment, we create new doctrines based on scriptures that were taken out of context to keep us from having to be honest with God and face our disappointment. Instead, we should do as the great leaders of our faith have done for generations and generations. Deliver us, O God. Let the light of your face shine upon me, O God. God, you've let me down. I know you didn't do anything wrong, but I'm disappointed with you. My parents weren't what I'd hoped they would be. My marriage wasn't what I thought it would be. I didn't think I'd have to wait till I was 35 to get married. I don't like where you've led me, God. I'm disappointed with you. How many of us have had those conversations with God? God is not intimidated by our honesty. He's not afraid of what we can tell him in our fear, in our disappointment, in our anguish, in our sorrow. He already knows. This is confession for a mature believer. This is what confession is. Confession is agreement with God and what he already knows. When we get honest with God and we push near to him in our disappointment and cling to him until he delivers on our longing, then, once we've done that, 
we will experience the fulfillment of our hope and eat of the tree of life. I've had a lot of experiences of disappointment. Um, and it kind of culminated for me in like 2009. And I think I told you guys a story about, I felt like God had spoken to me about a certain date and I thought I was going to be delivered from a season. And I went and there was no deliverance. He just told me he loved me. He was proud of me for believing. I had no idea what it meant at the time. On the way back, I'm listening to a sermon talking about believing. And I started to realize I would rather believe big and be disappointed than stop believing at all. There's such a death that comes about our lives when we stop believing and hoping. We become so hollow and stale and empty. There's no more zeal. There's no more excitement. And there's no more passion because we have allowed disappointment to prevent us from, from faith, from hope, from pressing in and continuing on. And I realized, God, you know what? As much as this disappointment is eating my heart, making my heart sick, as much as I want to throw up right now because I'm so ill in my, in my emotions, I, I hate where I am, as much as I hate this feeling, I cannot stop believing because it's the only thing that I have. It's the only lifeline of life that I have is that I'm going to believe that at some point you will actually deliver because you are who you say you are. The choice becomes faith equates to risk. There will be disappointment in a life of faith. I guarantee you that. And the choice becomes I'm going to shrivel up and die because I'm afraid of being disappointed or I'm going to take risks and I'm going to believe and I'm going to be willing to be disappointed because if I'm disappointed over and over and over and over, and if I keep getting up again and again and again and again, I'm going to be there the day that he delivers on his word. And I'm going to get to experience the fulfillment of a desire that I've carried for 10, 15, or 20 years. There are a few things for me that are so grievous as watching disappointment capture someone's dream and that they stop chasing it. They stop hoping for it because the disappointment became more intimidating for them than the beauty of the realization of that dream. I've seen, I've experienced, I've watched my friends experience circumstances where something they hoped for did not pan out how they thought it would. And they would talk of giving up. I can't keep chasing this. I'm so tired. I have to stop. I have to give up. It's just not going to happen. It's not for me. And you say, you can't stop hoping. You will die. Literally, you will die. And when you watch them persevere and realize this promise and see it fulfilled, there are few things that can ever bring as much joy. And having experienced the anguish of disappointment and somehow by some miracle, the ability to hold on to this tiny thread of hope and getting to experience God deliver on his promise and enter into the season that is a tree of perpetually budding life, the only thing I can tell you is be honest with God about your disappointment and do not let it become greater than your desire to see that dream, that hope realized and fulfilled. You will be disappointed over and over and over in this life. You will. Disappointment is not the end of you. 
Disappointment cannot kill you unless you give up. We can be satisfied in God rather than in our longing fulfilled. And he will sustain us until he fulfills our longing. There are those times where we're so disappointed with God that we have to force ourselves just to look at him and talk to him. Where we're so heartbroken that I can't bear the thought of talking to him in prayer and I have to force myself to him and say, you are working all things for my good and the only thing I'm doing is clinging to this as a promise. If we never have to cling to this as a promise, we're not living a life of faith. And our confidence in his faithfulness will grow as we hold to our hopes through and in our disappointment until he delivers on his word. This does not happen overnight. This means clinging to a hope like it's the only life rope we have through the most anguished, painful times we've experienced of disappointment. This is our lifeline. A longing fulfilled is a tree of life. The rope that we cling to, saying, I will believe you that you will fulfill this, is our lifeline until we get to that tree. If we let go of this in disappointment, we have given up and it will be the end of us. Simeon and Anna in the New Testament, that's the introduction of the New Testament is Simeon and Anna. They were waiting to see the Messiah. And we read it and we're like, cool, me too. Because that's the only thing I'm hoping for. They hadn't heard God speak in 400 years. There'd been no word of the Lord in 400 years. And Simeon and Anna are praying, waiting, and hoping to see the Messiah. That is ridiculous. But it was their lifeline. It was the only thing they had in a time where no one had heard from God in 400 years. They were hoping that they would see the Messiah, and they got to. What? What a privilege to behold the one that they'd waited for for centuries. It is, not by it is not by avoiding disappointment that we remain hopeful and find fulfillment of our longings. It is by staying faithful to God's word through the disappointment and clinging to his word, knowing he cannot deny himself. He has to be faithful if we are faithful. And I spent three weeks on marriage because marriage conjures up these feelings of disappointment and grief as much as probably any other thing for, for us as young people. And I wanted to bring it up again and again and again because when we're disappointed and we're dishonest with God about it, we're deceiving ourselves and we're going to make it very, very difficult to ever enter into a promise unless we get back before God and say, I'm honest with you, I'm disappointed. You and I, we have to get some things straightened out. Marriage is wonderful. It is to be hoped for. It is to be anticipated. And to be waited upon through disappointment. And then to be enjoyed once it comes. So that's the first reason why we talked about marriage for three weeks. The second reason is that societally, marriage is a huge issue right now in our nation, as all of us are aware. But I think for most of us, we don't know why it's a huge issue. And we go, I guess, you know, marriage is cool, fun, you know, so I get it. And so we look at it, like, I'm not sure why this is that big of a deal, you know? It's just like, it's a few rights and some liberties and some 
benefits from the government. Why does this even matter? This doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I mean, they're not like trying to tell the Bible that the Bible's wrong, so why is this a big deal? It doesn't make sense. Let's just let people do whatever. Societally, the redefinition of marriage is more than just redefining marriage. The issue is more than just civil benefits. The issue at stake is not really even about marriage, honestly. How do you like that? The issue at stake is religious liberty. That's the issue that's at stake. That's why this is such a huge ordeal, and we as Christians are almost completely asleep on this. How many of you guys have read Constitution or the Bill of Rights? Honestly, just like how many of you guys have really read this thing? Yeah. So the First Amendment of the Constitution, the first one, numero uno, this is how it starts. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or the press or the right of the people to peaceably assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. No law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Free exercise of religion. Okay. I don't get it. Right now, what's happening, you will hear this regularly, rather than called freedom of religion, you know, Christians, we're not, we're not religious, right? We're Christians, we're not religious. So if we don't use freedom of religion, we're okay with that because we're not religious, we're Christians. And so they're, they're changing some verbiage and they're calling it freedom of worship. We're Christians and we're like, that's us, we like to worship. We worship God at work. We worship God at church. We worship God at home. We're worshipers. We like freedom of worship. So that's okay by us as Christians, largely. But what it means, freedom of worship is what you do personally, internally. Freedom of religion is what you practice and how you act and how you live. The difference is, freedom of worship means You're free to talk to in private whatever God you think you want to, but don't think that you can practice this outside your personal worship of him. The practice, that's that's religion. Freedom of worship is how you and your heart feel about God. So we're okay with you Christians wanting to just do the thing in the heart because that's nice and we all feel good. But if you start to practice it, that's freedom of religion, and we don't want you practicing life according to your beliefs or telling other people that this is the way life should be lived. That's freedom of religion. So, the marriage issue becomes huge because if anybody can marry anybody, and if someone speaks against this, They can be legally punished. Freedom of religion just ceased. The First Amendment, the Bill of Rights, is over. The first law of our land that our country was founded on is gone. The Constitution eroded. Freedom of religion ends the moment you can no longer voice disapproval of a way of life without being legally punished. Freedom of religion will be ended if you can no longer publicly demonstrate your beliefs. How many of you guys right now are thinking, so? So? Freedom, first of all, was the reason that the pilgrims fled England. This was the reason that they left England, was so that they could practice freely their religion without being persecuted or arrested. This is what was lost 
by the Jews and the Christians in the 30s in Germany. And they watched it go just as silently as we are watching it go today. They just watched it taken right away. And they never said anything because they didn't think the issues at hand were that big of a deal because they did not understand that when you lose the right to practice your religion, when you lose that right, you lose real freedom. That now means that anything you say according to your beliefs that contradicts with anyone else's way of life, you can be instantly arrested and detained for as long as anyone sees fit. Should you go and carry a Bible that has hate speech in it? This is why every Bible was burned in Germany, because it had hate speech and anyone possessing it would be arrested immediately. The end of the freedom of religion will be the end of our great country as we have known it since its founding. Has it been without flaw? Absolutely not. But has it been one of the greatest nations it's ever been? Yes, at times it was. And is there still tremendous potential for it as a country? Yes, there is. So do you give up on it? And just let it happen. Lose our religious liberties, big deal. I'll move to Canada. They're losing theirs too. Christians are silent on these issues because largely we do not understand what's actually happening in the issues that are being dealt with on a national level right now. We're silent. We're watching it happen in front of us. Soon, Christians will have lost their liberties altogether. And at that point, being a true Christian will cost some people their jobs, their families, and lead to their imprisonment, even their death. So my point is, as Christians, we have a responsibility to speak now before it's, there's no more opportunity to speak. You speak now, you're not going to be arrested. You might be called hateful and bigoted, but you're not going to be arrested. You're not going to lose your family and your house and your life. People may not like you. You might not be as popular as you are today, being everybody's best friend. But you'd be faithful. To simply be a Christian who allows the culture to decay around us is to miss the opportunity we have now to halt the slide to destruction by using the liberties we still possess. It's like carrying around a bag of money with a hole in it. The money is falling out the bottom. And we could stop for a moment and use some of the money that's in the bag to pay to have the bag sewn up before it's all gone, but we're just walking along, watching it all slip away. We still have the liberties to speak out against the things that are happening in our country where liberties are being taken away day after day after day, but we're quietly walking along with our money falling out the bottom of our bag, and before we know it, there will be nothing left to stop and see the bag repaired. There will be no liberties left to utilize to halt the taking away of liberties that are happening on a day-to-day basis. We're fearful of being labeled as hateful or bigoted, so we avoid confrontation altogether. We are being bullied into silence. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I don't know if you've heard of him. He was a Christian in Germany in the 30s. And he has a famous quote, and he says, Silence in the face of evil is itself evil. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak is to speak, not to act is to act. It was Dante who also had a quote, the hottest places in hell are reserved for those in a time of moral chaos remain neutral. The point is, as Christians, in a nation where there is a liberty to practice our religion, we still have an opportunity to 
affect our culture, to affect the direction that our nation is going. But it's going. If we're not aware of that, we're playing ostrich. If we're not aware of what's happening around us, we're lying to ourselves. Things are happening day after day after day, and we're remaining silent because we're afraid of how people are going to think of us and respond to us. And before too long, it's too late. It's happened historically again and again and again. Read um, a good resource is Eric Metaxa's book called Bonhoeffer. I think it's uh, Pastor, Prophet, Martyr, Spy, or something like this. Read it. It's like 600 pages. <laughs> so, you know, read it over the weekend. So this leads me to my third point. What would you say? <laughs> it's on my nightstand. It's too big for me right now. I'm going to try to get the picture book edition, but I'm hoping they come out with a movie like they did with Wilberforce one. Yeah. So this leads me to the third point. And it also leads me to, some of you guys are relatively new. Some of you guys have been here forever. Um, some of you guys have heard this 50 times, and some of you guys may have heard this once and forgot. But I'm going to tell you why we're here. I want to tell you what the vision of SLM is, and why we're doing what we're doing, and what we believe it's leading to. The purpose of SLM is to aid in the development of individuals over the course of years until they become cultural influencers. I have zero interest in, in seeing like a big church grow if we don't do anything to influence our culture. I'd be so disgusted with myself and the rest of our leadership if all we produced was a bunch of Christians who come together to worship and that was the end of it. That if we weren't practicing our religion in affecting our culture, I would be so disappointed with myself and what I'd done. SLM, in its birth, was for the sake of helping people develop into influencers of their culture, people who affect change in their culture. That's why we're here. That's why we're doing what we're doing. We are rediscovering the ancient Hebraic conflict concept of community, a community that puts its emphasis on action in the name of God's glory. I get, I get so grieved by churches who all they do is church. They have small groups, they have, they're so well organized, and it's all just church. And they get together and they hang out and it's, it's not a social club because people are growing. But there's no understanding that the reason that we're growing is to become unified as a group, not for the sake of becoming a big, best church. It's for the sake of a group of people who of one heart, one mind, one accord, unify in vision to affect change in whatever community they're in. The Hebrew community's emphasis was on action. They shared a vision. Their whole life was built around God, the temple, and his way of doing things for every part of the way they lived. Business, education, family, manufacturing, all of it. The Hebrew community was with the point of action according to God's ways, and that's what, that's what SLM is designed to do. SLM men and women do righteousness. We do acts of righteousness. Isaiah 56, verse 1. We do more, though, than simply evangelize or love others. We affect culture. We make disciples. That means more than just loving people and evangelizing people and trying to give them an experience. We affect them, persuade them, 
influence them and change the way they think. We make disciples. That's what the Great Commission was. We realize that to change culture, we must change the way people think. Culture doesn't change unless we change the way people think. We have to be prepared to teach people how to think rightly about God and about his ways in every area of life. You guys hear me talk about this Foundations book that Pastor wrote? I'm not trying to get brownie points. He already likes me. We're already friends. It's not helping me out any. The point is, it's 300 and some pages about every topic you can think of and what is the biblical perspective on these topics and how should life be lived accordingly. It's important because this is how we change and affect a culture is by teaching people how they should live. We can't just love them. That's, that's good, but that's Christianity 101. There's more than that. So this means that we must declare and implement the ways of the kingdom into our daily lives as we live amidst a culture in need of aid. This doesn't mean that we abandon ship and run away from the culture. This means that we get closer to it than we're comfortable being. We don't have to be afraid of the culture. We don't have to approve of it either. But we might have to get near the things that we don't approve of if we're to affect change in those places. You can't end a behavior you don't approve of if you're not close enough to the person doing that behavior to affect change in their life. We do not distinguish between sacred and secular. There's no wall. There's no boundary. We recognize that all we do in obedience to God is worship. We know that we must be just as much about kingdom business when we lead a business meeting. We host a social gathering. We go fishing. We get together at a game. We must be just as much about kingdom business there as when we prepare a Bible study, read a psalm, or sing on the worship team. There is no separation. None. We've learned that work and worship are one and the same when our lives are fully involved in God's purposes. There is no difference in the way that you're worshiping when you come through these doors and there's music in the front than there is when you're doing your job diligently out there and nobody knows about it. And you're, there's no hands up and you're down on your hands and knees and you're scrubbing something that you don't want to know what it is. That's just as worshipful as the moment you're standing in the front of the church with your arms raised high. If that's where God has placed you and you're doing it faithfully in obedience, that is as holy as what we do in this building. You moms with kids, how many of you guys know that when you're up in the middle of the night changing diapers and feeding a screaming angel, it's worship. It's holy. It's holy. You've been called to a friend group. You're holding their hair back as they vomit alcohol and bile until three in the morning. And you're there holding their hair back. That's worship. Because you were called to come alongside this person, even though the very behavior that they're doing repulses you. It's the only way you're going to affect change is by being there with them. In our community, we aren't, in, we aren't uncomfortable praising him, sharing our testimonies, or proclaiming his goodness. We encourage each other not to draw any lines between those activities and what we do every hour of the day. It doesn't matter what you're doing in your life throughout the day. If you're having an opportunity to share a testimony or you're just doing your job, they're worshipful and they're holy. The 
purpose of what we're doing is to seek to cause the culture to change to reflect the kingdom of God. You guys, were you guys here? Anyone watch the news when the whole thing was going on with the debt ceiling and the government's about to crash and we're going to default one day and we're shutting down the next day and the economy's about to come unglued and people are freaking out. The stock market's going crazy. I mean, they're saying it was going to be worse than the Great Depression. Do you know what happened? God's economy, those same days? Nothing. It's completely unaffected. It doesn't shift. It doesn't shake. It doesn't tremble. Every part of his kingdom is unshakable. I'd rather live in a kingdom like that and have that manifest in my community than the one that's so terrified that something could go wrong that political hotlines are ringing off the hook because people are in panic mode trying to keep something bad from happening. I'd rather live in a, in a city that has the kingdom and the ways of the kingdom functioning throughout every part of it. But somebody's got to affect the change that makes it happen. I talked to you guys before about Wilberforce and the Clapham sect. I'm going to share for the last few minutes about that, and then we'll close. This is a group of people that were in England, and I don't remember if I told you guys this, so you're going to hear it either way. England at the time was extremely profane. It was awful. I mean, the parliament, they were drunk in parliament. You know, they're here, they're supposed to be debating on serious issues of government. They're drunk. Um, Prostitution is rampant. 25% of the female prostitution of England, 25% of the female population of England, their job was prostitution. So 25% of women in a country were prostitutes. That was their job. And the average age of these 25% women was, I think, 13 or 14. It was 13 or 14, one of the two. So a quarter of the female population in a country was prostitutes, and the average age of that group was 13 or 14. You know, if you put the average somewhere near the median, that means 50% of those were 12 and under. This is England. Cruelty to animals was normal. That's what people did for fun. They'd go out, you know, they'd put dogs in a circle and they'd light them on fire and let them run around until they killed each other. And that's what people did for entertainment. This was England. Slavery was normal. It was normal. If you resisted normal, you were, you were considered crazy. It's... It's like, it's like for one of us to stand up and say, no, this is what marriage is supposed to be. Hey, you, sit down. You don't know what you're talking about. Not you. You can go. Just... This is what slavery was. If you spoke against it, people freaked out. The entire business world was built on this thing. Trade, mercantile, all of it, build on slavery. You speak against it, you are getting creamed. So William Wilberforce gets converted in the mid-1780s. And he's actually converted into a Methodist group of which John Wesley started, which is really cool for me because I love both those guys. He was wrestling with his faith, and he went on a trip with a friend who was a Methodist guy, and Wilberforce has health issues, and his stomach is bothering him. And on this train, his buddy looks at him, and he's like, really uncomfortable and nervous. This is written in Wilberforce's journal. Do you mind if I pray for you? And he says his friend was embarrassed, and he said, I guess you can. And he prays for him, and Wilberforce says, though my friend's embarrassment was evident, my stomach felt better nonetheless. And about a couple of months later, he's converted, born of God, and realizes, oh my goodness, England's called a Christian nation, we are so far from it, I can't even handle it. And so he then leaves everything, goes and starts a cult, builds a wall around his compound, and spends the next 60 years just eating cornbread and muffins. I'm just kidding. That's what he wanted to do. Wilberforce wanted to leave Parliament 
and popularity and pursue a life of solitude because the culture was so corrupt. So he goes to visit John Newton. You guys know who John Newton is? You guys, you guys, anyone know this? You guys know this? Four of you know this? John Newton's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He was a captain of a slave trip, gets, gets, gets saved, writes Amazing Grace. This was Wilberforce's pastor. He goes to him. He says, John, I'm thinking of leaving what I do. I want a life of solitude. I want to do ministry just like you. I feel like I can do more. And he says, you cannot leave. England needs you. England needs you. Perhaps you can do more staying in the culture than you can separating from it. Shortly thereafter, this group, the Clapham sect, visits Wilberforce. This was a group of people who had come together and said, we need to change our society. We need to affect our culture for the better. They now go to Wilberforce and say, we want you to join us. And they explain to him, hey, we think you can actually worship God by working for God's causes in the culture. And so he buys in. And they actually moved into, they built four adjoining houses together. And they used them to host these massive social functions where they would invite hundreds of, this is going to sound crazy, non-Christians to their parties. Freaky. And they did this over and over and over. And these people committed to live as a group with the purpose of effecting change in England for over 40 years. And the only reason it ended after 40 years was because it worked. He's known for abolishing the slave trade. 1807, it became illegal to trade slaves, but slavery was still legal. So he keeps fighting, and they keep fighting. They're signing petitions, they're writing banners, they're, they're doing open-air preaching, they're writing books. Anything and everything they can think of to change the way their society thinks about slavery, they were doing. It wasn't just, you couldn't just go and be nice to people. You had to tell them why the way they thought was wrong. And they did it for 40 years. Until in 1833, they passed a law that abolishes slavery as a practice in almost all of England, and three days after this happens, Wilberforce dies. His life work is complete. This group, though, they started groups that were for the abolition of public drunkenness. They sought to see prostitution ended, and it was as a practice. They were the first group that started a, a No Cruelty to Animals Society. The current social justice movement that we see in our country today about caring for the poor was birthed by the Clapham sect in England. That's, where, that's why we view social justice, the gospel, we might call it, the way we do was because these guys changed the way everyone thought about the poor. They changed the way an entire nation thought about all of these issues, and it has since affected us. I don't think Christianity is supposed to be just a bunch of people hanging out, being nice to one another and everyone else. I think it's, a, it's a supposed to be a group of people that has a like vision to see the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. I think that if a people will come together and say, you know what, we're going to run together until either Jesus comes back, I die, or my city reflects the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not going to run away from the culture to do it. I'm going to get into the culture to do it. I'm going to get in the trenches. I'm going to be in parliament. I'm going to be in the bar. I'm going to be at the social gatherings. I'm going to be there because the only way that I can change the way people think is by being with the people who need to change the way they think. The dream that I have for SLM and that we had when it started is, is why it's so ambiguous. <laughs> and there's no one-year certification or four-year program. The reason is because I think it's a group of people who are like-minded who want to do more as a Christian than just show up. 
who want to do more as a Christian than just be a part of a church group. They actually want to see their culture change. And it's a group of people who's going to come together and they're going to commit to one another and to their community until they see it happen or until the Lord comes back or they go to meet him. Even if it's 40 years, it's going to change the way it looks over and over and over again over that period of time. But I was thinking about this the other day. A few years ago, pretty much no one knew where Water's Edge was, what Water's Edge was, or anyone involved with it. A few years later, we now have some of the most respected people in their fields coming out of this church, and they're still under 30. If you go around town and you ask certain names, and I'm not going to embarrass any of you, but you should be honored by the fact that if I go and ask someone about your name, and this might be an executive of one of the bigger companies in our, in our city, they know exactly who you are, and they admire you and speak highly of you. And it happens over and over and over again. And yet we've been at this for just a few years. We've only been running together for just a short, short period of time. What happens 10 years from now? When this entire group here has been running together for 10 years, living together for 10 years, working together for 10 years, growing in respect in the community for 10 years and affecting the way people think for 10 years. Not only have you led another 100 people into maturity inside the church, but you've affected thousands and thousands of people out there who now think about God differently and they think about God's kingdom differently. It doesn't take long in a city of 20,000 to change a culture. That's why I love small markets. It's not like trying to change Los Angeles. There's only 20,000 minds that we got to change. That's not a lot, guys. That's what we're doing here. That's what SLM, that's the dream. And so I tell you those three things, and they kind of connect, but not really. Because I want you to know that there's a huge fly on my head. And I killed one last night. It was awesome. Just a whoosh ninja. And uh, I was pumped. Char saw it. Yeah, it's still on the chair in the front. <laughs> it's dead rotting carcass. We're pro-life. Um, other than flies and spiders. Um, it's really important to me that you guys know what we believe we're doing. That this is not just something we're throwing together every year. That this is something that we took an enormous amount of time preparing for and planning for and trying to set up so that when it started, it was effective from the get-go. And it still changes all the time. But the, but the desire, the goal, the dream for what we're doing, I hope that we can help each of you form, develop, come into maturity, become an effective cultural influencer, and wherever you go, wherever you're planted, that you'd be someone who's known for representing the kingdom of God and affecting change that mirrors his way, his law. So we're going to pray, and then we'll get out of here and go to the trick-or-treat. Lord, thank you for candy. Thank you for your presence, Father, with us for these many years here. Lord, thank you that you have called us and that you have set us on a course to do more than just be a church. Lord, we don't want to build pretty little church buildings and pretend that we're making a difference. We literally want to affect change in our culture and influence it to reflect your kingdom. You taught us to pray. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So teach us, Lord, that our calling is to love one another, love others, but that there's far more to it. There's far more available to us and intended for us as we go forward. Father, in regard to dealing with the disappointment of our own hearts that often prevents us to, from coming into maturity or fullness, 
Lord, I pray that disappointment would no longer steal the destiny of anyone in here. I pray that the fear of disappointment would no longer cripple anyone in our midst. That we would be a people of faith and of hope and we would cling to you like a lifeline until you deliver us that we might see your faithfulness over the decades, over the years. Father, I ask for relationships to grow rich and deep in our midst that those who are called here might flourish here over the course of years as we watch and see our city change. But Father, we believe more than just one little town in Michigan. We believe that you are doing something uh, far greater in our land today, and we want to be a part of it. We don't want to sit silently as things fall apart. We want to be a force that pushes things in the opposite direction. So give us great courage. Unite us with one another, that we might join together and be encouragement to one another, that we'd be fruitful in all our works. We love you. Thank you, Father. We love you. Amen.